Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Dr. Mason, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. We're going to talk about a subject I'm trying my best to learn a lot about, but would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Certainly. Uh, my name is Oren Mason. I'm a family physician from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And about 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, I began specializing only in ADHD. So I have a very uh, subspecialized practice right now. I developed that interest uh, uh, when my two, two of my sons were diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. And uh, that that began my interest. But I was uh, surprised how few resources were available and how few physicians uh, knew very much about it. In, in, in fact, I was shocked how little I knew about it. And I had been trained to treat patients with ADHD. It, it's not a big part of the medical curriculum. Um, but uh, in in uh, trying to find care for my sons, I developed a high interest, and that led to uh, a specialization in that that I've been doing for over 20 years now. So I have uh, sons with ADHD who are now grown. I have ADHD myself. All my patients have ADHD. I spend every day talking to 20, 30 people who have ADHD. So my life is ADHD, and I'm uh, looking forward to sharing it with you and your listeners. Thanks for the opportunity. When it comes to the early days when the resources are kind of small, it makes a lot of sense because when I was a kid growing up, like a lot of people just would kind of be like tell you to grow out of it or like you're going to you're gonna be fine. You're just, you know, got a lot of energy just like kids do. And it seems like there was not really any conversation about it, which made me think it was me. It wasn't like this actual thing. And then I know some people call it a myth and all that type of stuff. Um, but compared to now, we have so much more resources and actually people are talking about it more. And I'm trying to do my best here by not only educating myself, educating my audience and making people aware. But what was it like with the barely any resources to be able to understand what ADHD was? It was not taught to any. I don't even think they teach it now really in schools. It's it's it, it, it's still given how prevalent it is and how, how common it is. Um, it's 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 remarkable that it doesn't get a lot more weight in a in a traditional medical education, um, but no, you're right. And in fact, I think I, I I think the lack of good research, good knowledge about ADHD hurt it uh, for the longest time. It just didn't make sense. Why on earth would you give stimulants to people who are too active and expect them to slow down? In fact, we knew that happened. I mean, there was a a report that was published in the Journal of Medical Association of the American Medical Association in 1937, uh, detailing how a group of troubled boys in a home for troubled boys, uh, 70% of them settled down and did their schoolwork perfectly well after they were given uh, uh, dexedrine, a precursor to Adderall. And you you have to wonder who at that school thought, hey, let's give these kids dexedrine. It's it's the most illogical thought, but it was such a stunning normalization of behavior that it made the cover of uh, a, a prominent journal at the time. But nobody knew why. We didn't know what ADHD was. It wasn't named that back then. It was called minimal brain dysfunction. That sounds horrible. It's it's had a lot of labels. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons it's been hard to pin it down is because it looks different in each person who has it. And so um, it's 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 gone through a lot of iterations. And I would argue that ADHD, that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is even a lousy name. But um, but it you, you, you can argue that name uh, all day. 
the 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 first thing that was known about it is that there's a set of behaviors that get better when we give stimulants to rowdy boys. And that was where the idea formed. And so when new stimulants came along, Ritalin seemed a little safer when it came along in, 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 in the 60s and it started, we started to use it uh, on hyperactivity in, in, in those days. But it, it still, it, it still was a mystery. And the explanations we were given, even in medical school, started with, we don't really know how these work, but we think maybe there's an underactivity in the nervous system and kids compensate for it with hyperactivity. They're trying to stimulate themselves. They're trying to provide the, some stimulation that the brain isn't giving. And um, so if we can give them some stimulation, then they don't need to do that. Well, that's false. Um, it worked for a while. But when we really got some science behind this, it turns out that it's an impairment in the control systems of the brain. And that's what, what, what the research has been focusing on uh, recently, the control systems for attention. So it's not a deficit of attention. It turns out that kids who appear not to be paying attention as they should are actually paying rapt attention to something else. No deficit of attention, just trouble holding it on the teacher and maintaining it there. And so control of attention is now uh, what we're investigating, not a, not a deficit. I think educating, like exactly how you just explained it, just telling teachers that would have helped me so much when I was a kid, just because they always thought it was rude or being disruptive or just not caring about what was going on. Like I didn't care about my life was always the back in the day. Teachers were brutal. They would be like, do you not care what you're going to end up? You're going to end up living on the street or something like that. I'm like, Oh my God. And I'd be daydreaming out a window or if you had a fish tank or a turtle aquarium in the class, that was it for me. Um, my seat would be right next to that turtle aquarium or fish tank or right by the window. And I would daydream most of the time or I wouldn't really remember class. But I find that when, it's something I'm interested in. Greek mythology was a good example in high school when I learned about that. And then later on, when I was actually going to college and trying to research more into psychology and going for that, I became fascinated in getting A's in my class in that specific subject, but then everything else was no. So that impairment issue of the tension, is it just because it doesn't give us enough incentive to want to do it? Does that mean, does that require more rewards? Excellent. Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you, you, you've already keyed on the, um, the important distinction. The, the, the nervous system behaves differently when it's interested. When things are emotionally compelling, there's an energy that comes from outside that draws us to something. And you, you, you don't have to explain it. If you like chocolate, you're drawn to it. Um, I happen not to like it. And I haven't liked it since I was a child and I've tried to like it, it would be convenient to like it. It's often served. Um, I'm in the same boat. I, I lost my taste for it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you love it, you love it. And if you hate it, you hate it. And you, um, you can say the same about broccoli. You can say the same about any type of music. Um, we're, we're just drawn to what we're drawn to. And we're repelled by what we're repelled by. When, when we're drawn to something, there's natural energy there. And the brain can take advantage of that and can derive attention control. And it comes quite easily. Um, 
you, you know, football fans in the fourth quarter of a close game uh, don't have to nudge each other and go, watch now, this is where something happens. You know, attention is easy. Uh, it comes free with the excitement. But the the whole process of school is learning a different attention, attention for what's important, not for what's interesting. And so a child sitting there going, wow, the aquarium's interesting and my teacher isn't, um, is supposed to be starting to exercise some self-control. But what we find in ADHD is that literally the pathways for doing that are underactivated and they don't work. And so telling a child with ADHD to pay attention to something boring is a lot like telling a one-armed man to clap louder. You're asking them to do something that they don't, that they're not biologically able to do. So Okay, so it's not my fault that when they told me to listen that I could just couldn't. Okay, all right. Well, that makes me feel better about my childhood a little bit. But I mean, if my brain's not, I mean, is there a way to try and activate? Is that with the, the drugs and things that people could help the situation? Or is that just a biological thing that I was given with at birth that there's just going to be like kind of impossible to do besides you could manage it maybe? But I mean, I always find tricking me usually works to help me learn something. Like if you can make it fun, if you can do something with an incentive and things of that sort. But then even then it gets me kind of, I get a little upset by that because then I go, what are you treating me like I'm a dog and I need a treat after I go out for a walk? That's not what I am. But they're like, well, this is how we can get you to learn. And I'm like, all right, maybe I shouldn't think of it that way. But it's hard not to when you're getting a, for me, I don't know, getting a separate standards or kind of conditions to work with because this is how I learn is good. But at the same time, it's like, I also want to function. It's a terrible catch 22 because- you, you you want to do it out of your own self-direction, out of your own will, out of your own, I will do what I need to do. You know, you want it to be willful uh, and chosen attention. Um, but people with ADHD, given that, that the, 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 the cognitive pathways, I mean, we've got a fair amount of studies now showing that, uh, you, you know, just failures of connection between the cognitive brain, the adulting brain, and uh, the brain were all the shoulds and um, where time sense and planning and organization all seem to uh, emanate. That part of the brain doesn't connect well with the behavioral centers. And so you can say, I should do this. And that message doesn't get to the behavioral centers. And so no behavior follows. But emotional messages do get to the behavioral center. And so somebody can say, you should do that and I will reward you or punish you based on your performance or your lack of performance. Now, now the emotional brain is connecting with the behavioral centers and you're fine, but it's a, it's a cheat. Like you say, and I'm, I'm sorry that it feels like uh, being a dog that needs treats, but there is something childish about needing an incentive to do something that's really should be, well, just do it. And so that's the, that, that, that's a terrible catch 22 of ADHD is how do I do it? How do, how, do, how do I do it without interest or fear motivating me? Couldn't I just do it? And in ADD, and I talk about this with kids all the time, and as soon as we start putting in these words, kids will say, oh, I don't have a just do it or 
Do you find that like, what's the most common problem with some of your patients? You don't have to be specific in anybody's life, but like overall, like what's an average, is it just the hyper thing? Cause I mean, I, usually what I always heard was, man, I would love to have your energy or that type of thing. I'm like, yeah, well I only sleep two hours a night. You know how that ends up catching up to you after a while. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Well, no, it's one of the reasons I don't like the name because it starts with hyper attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. And so we've elevated hyperactivity into the actual name, and it's the least of the concerns. Um, you, you know, it's hard to manage hyperactivity in a six-year-old, but even the most active 12-year-olds are doing a better job of sitting still in class. Um, hi hyperactivity isn't the biggest bugaboo. It's, it's a way to see who doesn't have good control mechanisms. But it it's 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 not at the core of what we really need to know about the brains of kids, teens, adults with ADHD. Um, the inattention is troublesome in school, and since almost all kids are in school, you, you know, school problems almost always show up. No, not always. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 42. Um, and, and nobody thought for a minute that I had it when I was a kid because I wasn't hyperactive. And when I was in grade school in the 60s, there was no such thing as a non-hyperactive form of ADHD. If we didn't see hyperactivity, nobody was ever gonna think um, minimal brain dysfunction. Um, so, but smart students who aren't hyperactive will often find a way to succeed in school. In my own case, I love learning. And I sense that in you too. One of the reasons I think you like, I mean, you go into a range of topics just because I, I, I think you, my, my sense is you enjoy learning a lot. And so when something piques your interest, you really kind of chase it. You love learning. And I did too. I do, do. Do I have you right? Yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely learned to appreciate learning more once I was able to do the show and actually not just talk about topics I'd like to talk about, but learning all sorts and getting an interest there. It's just when I can ask my own questions, it's a different experience. It's like I I always used to get anxiety in school all the time, but then once I went to college, it wasn't like that because I had my car keys in my pocket and at any time I could leave this class. It was like I didn't have a boundary or a restriction on me anymore, and I do have an authoritative issue, but even with teachers and like, usually I keep it level playing field here, but when a teacher's talking down to me, the information goes in one ear and out the other, but it's different when we're just having a conversation, then I, we're, we're equals and I can learn about that. I don't know if that's a ADHD problem as well too, or just my own ego, but. Well, I mean, part of it is learning style. Um, you know, I mean, there, there, there's no way I'm, never going to say, oh, that's an ADD thing you're doing or, oh, that doing that proves you don't have ADHD. I mean, we're not about, uh, you, you know, diagnosis is something that we do in private. And um, so you're not going to end this show with a sense that you do or don't have ADHD. Um, the, um, but the, if, if, if you know that that's your learning style, then you should engage that learning style as often as you can. Now, one of the reasons we go to school is we want to train our prefrontal cortex because we want to be able to survive and thrive in circumstances that aren't 
tuned to us, to our own liking. We want to we be able to go out in a world that might be unfriendly, that might be hostile, that that might not give us uh, optimal opportunities, but still do well in it. So you'd like to do well in a class, even if the teacher doesn't appreciate and doesn't deliver in your style. You know, you'd like to be able to work with a variety of coworkers, not just the people where it's easy and natural to work with them, but people that might be prickly, but might really, you really need them on the team. And so you have to work a little harder to make that a successful relationship. So, so that's where we start to see ADHD. People with ADHD, like everybody else, thrive in the right circumstances. But then the, the farther we get from the ideal, the more those of us with ADD, our, our performance starts to drop and our ability to continue to do well in that in, in that little bit tougher, a little bit different circumstance uh, starts to starts to fall to the side. Have they done studies on that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. The, 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 the prefrontal cortex is like the, uh, you, you know, the thermoregulatory system, when that appeared evolutionarily, m mammals all of a sudden could live in environments that uh, lizards couldn't. It was, it was, it was great, could uh, thrive in the winter and uh, in extremes of temperature. And uh, so mammals really spread all over the world and occupied all kinds of niches uh, that the other orders uh, uh, couldn't uh, work their way into so well. Um, well, the prefrontal cortex is what helps us socially. It's like the social thermo thermoregulatory system. Um, you know, go into uh, a, a room of people who don't all agree on some basics, but still come out with some work product. Um, you, you know, go into non-ideal circumstances, but maintain your selfhood, maintain your contribution, and socially thrive despite differences. Yeah. So, so the one of, one of the jobs of the prefrontal cortex is to help us thrive both emotionally and functionally in, in many different circumstances. So, you know, somebody who's good at, uh, who really wants to be uh, a policeman, a policewoman, and who, who likes the notion of uh, public order and public peace and wants to be a part of it, might not like paperwork. But to be a good cop, you know, you've got to be good with people. You've got to understand the law. You've got to understand psychology. But then you have to go do the paperwork. And so the prefrontal cortex is what lets us do the paperwork, even though that's not in our nature, as well as the uh, the police work, which might be. Kind of like uh, weighing out the benefit or rewards to risks. Like if the reward is you get to be active and get to be a cop and go around and move around and you know be not behind a desk, which is like it's very difficult for a lot of people to be behind a desk. Um, but then you got to do the paperwork, though. So does the paperwork really outweigh the going out and being a cop and doing all that type of stuff? Well, if it doesn't, then go do the job. And if it does, then maybe being a cop isn't for you. And then you would look at another option. That, that that's exactly it. But good luck finding a job without paperwork these days. <laughs> I know. I'm telling you. I usually I do that when I go to the grocery store or something like that. It's weighing my options. If I go, usually I go first thing in the morning when there's not a lot of people there and get in and out. But then if it's like 
2 p.m., if it's 3 p.m. or something like that, it's not worth it. It's not worth going in there and waiting in lines and trying to find a parking spot and doing all these things. But then also I'm also building it up in my head too. So it's like getting even worse than that. But then, like I said, I think it's the pressure stuff for me. The pressure stuff, if I'm forced to do something and it's like spontaneous, like right at this instant, then I'm very like, uh, no disagreements, nothing. It just happens. But then if I have to think about it, like even if I'm if I have a Zoom or something the next day, if it's at whatever time, I'll be like a hundred percent like, okay, I got plenty of time, plenty of time, plenty of time. That's like five minutes. Oh God, and I gotta run all the way and get in the studio and then get set up and everything like that. I don't know if that's bad time management, a hundred percent, but there has to be studies talking about something with people's time experience with ADHD. Because I thought I was having Alzheimer's and I'm starting to realize no, I may be just missing chunks of my life because I'm not paying attention to every second. No, there, there, there's actually a lot of studies on that. And one of the core symptoms of ADHD is, um, you know, chronic lateness. Um, the uh, people with ADD procrastinate, but so, so does everybody. I mean, you have to be careful with this one. Um, procrastination is really leaning into the emotional energy that you know is going to be intense at a deadline. And you can't procrastinate if there's not a deadline. Oh God. <laughs> so, and and it's not a deadline if somebody else didn't set it. You, you, you know, so, so sometimes teachers uh, will, will, will tell students some, um, you know, I've been giving you, you know, deadlines. Here's the deadline for the rough draft. Here's the deadline for the next copy. Here's the deadline for the final copy. But now you have to do it yourself. So set your own deadlines. Well, that's a linguistic error. Because nobody's going to shoot themselves. You know, the deadline applies, you know, there's a line of bullets ahead. Don't walk into it. <laughs> You're going to get hurt if if you if you cross the deadline. Well, you can't set a deadline for yourself. The only thing you can set for yourself is a good idea line. It'd be a real good idea if I had this done by X. Well, now you just went from emotional. There's urgency and concern and self-preservation if you're facing a deadline now you're just going okay it's sensible do you want to be sensible or not sensible that's not that's not an emotionally uh that, that's not a distinction that you feel you can say i set a deadline for monday night but monday you didn't feel like doing it i'll, I'll do it tomorrow I, I just am not feeling it you find so is there, a lot of this can be like li linguistically treated as well too. Like if people just change their wording on things like that, like I find that even when people are saying certain things, even if it's like old language, like we haven't heard in years, and it's something that's like just tossed out as like, what does that mean? And then you can it, it hits different. Like if you call someone an idiot is one thing, everyone knows that's that's hurtful and that's mean. But then if you just switched it to be you're being educationally challenged, I'm like. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, but I understand what the meaning is, but I also don't feel like I'm going to be mad at you or anything like that. And then I start realizing, okay, maybe I should pay attention and try and get it. So a lot of this could be just linguistical stuff. If we just change some of our wording that we do, maybe someone with ADHD might have a better reception of it. No, that's a, it's a real good point. And um, that, that's actually a big part of the coaching that a lot of individuals with ADHD will undertake. Um, there's, there's a coaching technique called reframing. And reframing means taking something and mentally 
in, in, in your own thinking and your own attitudes, approaching it and shifting your attitude. So for example, do you want to um, clean up your bedroom so that nobody yells at you that it's dirty? Or do you want to clean up your bedroom so that you can enjoy the organization? Ooh. Second one, hundred percent. You get well, as soon as you said the clean up the so you can enjoy the organization. I'm like, all right, there's a, there's something I get out of that. Right, and so this is a linguistic turn that starts to activate different motivational centers in the brain. I want. I mean, is there a lot of people that know about that? Like, can we start? implementing that like i mean even with parents i know parents that follow adhd pages and they see things that they implement with their kids that might have adhd or something and it helps them out a lot and i usually get into like sometimes i'll have like once a week i'll clean the whole house but as soon as i start and i grab like a small vacuum someone will be like well you've used the bigger vacuum you're able to clean up more and i just drop it and i go well that whole me wanting to clean the house just went right out the door there's nothing mean or anything that was said it was just a little slight thing and then immediately that whole feeling of stuff like it's weird you got to capture a feeling sometimes whether it's like a certain interest or something like that nothing deters you from it but then you i, I mean i guess i don't know i wouldn't say nothing because sometimes you just lose it it could be a weather outside it could just be like oh maybe i shouldn't be doing this today right no when um you, you, you know, it's always fair to do things on an emotional basis. I mean, using emotional motivators isn't wrong. The fact that emotions are more primitive, you know, that's our lizard brain. But the the, the fact that they're more primitive than our, our cognitive brain, um, which is something where we really stand out from the animals. We, we do a lot more cognitive processing than any other uh, species. Um, you, you, we... we we, we 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 like to think that we're really smart, we're really cognitive, um, but the, the the truth is we're really emotional. And there's a lot of times we're a little like, ooh, it would feel good to clean up. Just this little emotional wave comes along, and for goodness sake, surf it. <laughs> you know, the waves going your way. You were hoping a little clean it up thing came along, and then somebody goes, oh, you suck at cleaning, and it knocks you right off your board, and the wave is gone. You, you know, it was the, it was the you're not good enough. I think in your story, uh, yeah, you're cleaning, but you're a stupid cleaner. Why, why, why do you clean dumb ways? You know, and you just go, oh, there went that wave. You find that a, a lot of reasons, maybe besides some of like the hyperactivity type stuff that some people have, but the dysfunctional way that kind of society looks at people with like maybe ADHD is because of that emotional kind of language that they kind of show as well too i had a guy who's an adhd expert who was on my show and he talked about aggression and driving you guys are more tend to get more aggressive and i go would you call it aggressive or being reactionary like i'm not trying to fight anybody but in the moment i'm like shit you know i gotta gotta do something with my hands i gotta say something it's usually gonna blurt out and it's not like i want to chase this person and do anything like that but i would call a lot of that like reactionary i mean i feel like I'm more emotionally charged than a lot of people, but not necessarily in a bad way, just mannerisms, the way I talk, things of that sort. Right. Well, and a lot, you know, somebody with ADD who is reactionary might have more moments of road rage or similar. Um, but there's people with ADD who stuff every emotion and don't 
and are not emotionally expressive. They're emotionally closed and they're emotionally contained. And so the thing that unites everybody with ADD isn't your emotional expressiveness pattern, but it's that you're clumsier with whatever your pattern is. And so there, 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 there's some people with ADHD who are emotionally closed who need to let it out every now and then and who never do. Um, there's some people who are emotionally expressive, but they never say it to anybody's face. They don't let it affect their driving. And it's it's not an impairment. You know, they're, they wouldn't do it in front of little children, for example. You know, would feel free to do it when you're driving by yourself, but wouldn't do it in front of little children. That's somebody who's self-controlled. You know, so we talked about uncontrolled attention and controlled attention. Same with emotions. You know, somebody who's expressive but can control it, can change it up and make it proper for every different situation. That's not ADHD. So it's not how voluble uh, your emotions are. It's whether you've got, as you age, increasingly better and better and more mature and more mature control of it. Or if you're just kind of stuck with the immature, nope, I'm always reactive. Or the opposite, oh, I never react. I think the never react would probably lead to way more depression diagnosis or anger issues. Um, because they might have an outburst, one giant one. And that's, I mean, everyone gets angry. That's not an ADHD thing. Everyone gets angry. And sometimes I have family members that have no ADHD, but they get angry all the time in public. It's not that they're just very, they don't care. And I think that awareness factor, like especially with adults that have ADHD, there's probably an awareness of this is how you have to act with society. I would call it like putting up scaffolding. Like if you're going to go out in public or you have a social event, you know how you got to act if you're at a dinner, if you're at a movie, if you're at like this, it's different than you act if you go to a football game or a ballpark and people know that as well too. But with ADHD, I feel like you would have to probably prep yourself a little bit more um, to going out in events. There's sometimes I say something, I'm like, I might've accidentally just rid the wave of my energy here. And I might've said something that might've been too, too TMI usually, but that's the social boundary thing that ends up getting lost sometimes. Right. And everybody does that. I mean, people with ADD do it more. Um, so, but like, like, like you say, you know, any example you give or that I give about my myself or a patient or something doesn't necessarily define whether you have ADHD or not. Um, the pattern in ADHD is if you need to do it for sensible reasons, that doesn't go. But if you can find any emotional way to get it done, that's going to go. And so that's, that's probably why 60% of people with ADD have anxiety disorders is because anxiety is a good way to do stuff. You know, worrying what somebody else is going to think about my bedroom is also a way to keep it clean. Presuming there's ever anybody looking at it. I'm married, so my wife, yeah, I, I, I can do it. I, I, I can do it because I'm worried what she can think. She, she she might think about it, but over the years, I've really tried to practice enjoying an orderly room so that I can, I can not always do it with her, the boogeyman. It's a care, it's a care problem. Um, I think it is, is like, that's a, that's definitely a big motivator, but 
there's a lot of things like even like you talk about like increase in depression, increase in anxiety, stuff I've heard from people that say like even with suicide risk and more dangerous lifestyle behaviors and things of that sort. I'm like, well, how do you get away that? Because a lot of those are like, even when I go to a doctor, it's not being prescribed Adderall or being prescribed an ADHD drug. It's first thing is like, here's Lexapro, here's these types of things. And it's like, well, I'm, I don't shame anybody that wants to use medication at all. For me, it's just not my choice. I would like to do, because if this is a part of me, I'd like to control it and find out how to do that. But then it's also like those burnout stages. I'm burned out right now, basically, but it's, I, I don't know how to explain a way or even try and understand more about it, just to be able to talk about how we normalize that. Like, this is something that is a part of you you're born with. But it doesn't have to turn into all these other things. We can find ways to manage it early. So then as an adult, you're able to function with those. And like I have a nephew that's like four years old, ADHD, already diagnosed with ADHD. So I'm interested in learning about it just because I know if I'm going to be a good uncle, you got to kind of pay attention to it. And I experience it. It's probably going to be different than he experiences it. So I'm trying my best. Like, how do we it, do we start with teachers? Do we start with friends? Do we start with family? Do we just m start making it less stigmatized to talk about it where people say, oh, it's in your head? Uh, those are all good answers. But how do we really implement like, I don't know, some precautions? I'm sure you've had to think as a father, you probably had to find your own ways to work with your kids in their own separate conditions as well, too, because it's not a, as a hindrance as everyone um, I, I don't know. It's, I'm starting to learn more about it. I start going, damn, what's the upsides of this thing? But then you kind of look at it, you can use it to your benefit. Right. No. And, uh, you know, that's a, that, 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 that's a constant debate and you might be a little surprised where I land on that one, but, um, the, I, I, I want to go back to the, to the first part of the question where you say, you know, what do we do about this? And, destigmatizing de is important um the behaviors that are normal in adhd are not normal if you don't have adhd and they appear to be lack of discipline they appear to be immaturity they appear to be uh sometimes willful disobedience or um or even uh just kind of not caring um, that's a frequent topic in, um, marriage therapist's office where, uh, one or both partners have ADHD is a, a, a lot of normal behaviors signal not caring and, but emanating from somebody with ADHD, they probably deserve reinterpretation. So we need to lose the stigma. People with ADHD need to be able to um, be out with it. ADHD right now is a hidden disability. You know, somebody somebody who's uh, lost part of a leg has a very obvious disability and will get a lot of credit from anybody who notices and says, oh, you know, let me, let, let me not run over you. Let me give you a little extra room on the sidewalk. Let me... Uh, let me make an accommodation for you. Walking down the sidewalk is harder for you than it is for me. And uh, so let me respect that. ADHD is an invisible illness. It's it's invisible and that's never going to happen. Um, when, when we look at scans of kids with ADHD trying to pay attention, we see a lot more brain active, but a lot less attention actually occurring 
in the lab. So kids with ADHD and adults with ADHD are working harder to achieve less, but never get credit for that. And so it really needs to be understood. People need to understand that not only if somebody who appears not to be doing his best, her best, maybe maybe the hardest working one in the classroom right now, and you have no right to judge somebody's effort without an awful lot of knowledge of their inner workings. And so when teachers say things like needs to be more consistent, that needs a little re-education because this is a group of kids for whom consistency is nearly impossible. So consistency isn't an everyday ask of a kid with ADHD. Consistency is heroic. And when somebody who doesn't have ADHD does something heroic in the classroom, we don't say to them, oh, finally, your potential. Now do that every day. We go, oh, that's heroic. You know, when kids with disabilities do the Special Olympics, they take longer than other kids to run 40 yards. But we don't say, oh, finally, you ran 40 yards. No, you know, do this every day without the trophies in the crowds. But kids with ADD, we say that to them. We say, oh, finally, you were consistent for a day. Now do that every day. It's 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 a tragic oversight that lands very with a lot of weight and a lot of shame on the hearts of kids with ADD who knew who know that they can't repeat that every day. But that was a banner day, and tomorrow is just not going to be that. So, so we're going to have to know who has ADHD to give them that space to have some ADHD behavior. So we have to diagnose it and people have to know it and people have to be accepting and loving just like most people are when they understand any disability in the people they live with. So I I, I don't think enough is known about ADD. Um, I don't think people understand that it's not a failure to try, that it's not a problem learning how to how to mature. It's literally doing the best that kids, that teens, that adults can with the neurologic set they've been given. Which doesn't sound like a big... We're a long way from this, as you can imagine. Which doesn't sound like a big ask because we already know people's brains process at different speeds and we know people adapt to different... I mean, everyone thinks differently. Everyone is different as a human being. So you would think that you would have to adapt someone's schedule or anything of that sort. I mean, how hard is it to put Jim as their first class in the morning? just so they can get some energy out and be able to function or sit in a class all day. You know, there's simple stuff, but it's also like, I mean, I guess the system, yeah, it's just the system. It's a, it's a bunch of stuff. And also when, like I said, it's the ADHD thing when you, people don't consider that anything at all. And I think once you explain like how you're saying that person that might seem like he's doing less work than everybody is actually doing some of the most hardest things at all. Sitting still is difficult. Trying to act what they would call normal or just what copy what someone else beside you is doing is very difficult, especially trying to, you know, keep up that facade. Imagine how many days you go to school and then eventually you start seeing school attendance start slipping because the person rather just stay home than deal with all what they would call school, whatever attitude or whatever. 
that's, I mean, you can't let that person live a life like that because then they create a bad experience for their life where next thing you know, they're missing job stuff because they want to do it. But I feel like for me, my anxiety would just have me go, you can't be late. You got to show up 30 minutes early and play on your phone or do whatever you have to to make sure you're five minutes early when you walk in at the appropriate time, which is, I don't know. But that's, there's a big thing that we start looking at, like what's 10 years later for these people? Imagine if we could start this early. I mean, if we can catch it early is a good thing, but if we can also start talking about it and normalizing it and having the system set up, you're going to have way more productive members of society. If you give me an IQ test now compared to, I mean, an actual good IQ test, not like a school basic one, I would pass with flying colors because I've done the research on my own accord and been able to do it. But back then there was nothing for me on that one. And that's so many kids are put in that situation, which my heart goes out to those people. It wasn't easy for me. The fact that I can even trust an education system at all now, but it makes it when you understand you're not the only one is the biggest thing. And that comes from talking about it, like you were saying, but also giving people, I guess, the proper tools to be able to succeed as well, too. I mean, exactly. No, it's about 10 percent of the population. And so um, we no, no, no teacher can afford not to be uh, up to date on what ADHD is and what we do for students with ADHD at their particular level. Um, you, you, you asked a question uh, that I really want to get into for just a minute, though, and, you know, what happens 10 years down the road. And that's been the subject of some interesting study. In, interesting in a uh, terrible way. But first off, there's no research that shows any advantage to ADHD. And I'm not in the group that considers ADHD a, a, a blessing. Um, I even have trouble calling it a, a difference. Um, but if you have ADHD, strength-based um, coaching is really important. It's very important to understand your strengths. And so David Nealon, who's the founder of uh, JetBlue, uh, Airways, very entrepreneurial mind, very creative. He started uh, a, a number of companies. If you're going to have ADHD and you have an entrepreneurial mind, then you really need to double down on on uh, your entrepreneurial efforts. Go with your strengths, but but don't say that everybody with ADHD should be an entrepreneur. Let's just say if you're ADHD and you've got this entrepreneurial mind and heart, uh, then go for it. Um, there's artists with ADD that probably need to earn less doing real art than they might earn if they could figure out how to um, segue into a bigger corporation and earn more money with uh, a, a less pure form of their art. People with ADD might need to really stay in pure artistry. You might not be able to make that shift into a higher paying uh, corporate uh, culture, but but understand your strengths. Your strengths aren't ADHD. Somebody else with ADHD is going to have different strengths. But if you've got ADHD, know your strengths and double down on them. And so I think it's just a mistake when we hear, oh, ADHD gives me energy. No, no you have energy. The ADHD is the uncontrolled part of the energy which you're going to want to learn how to control through all the tools of control, but enjoy 
being energetic. Um, because people who have ADHD and aren't energetic are missing that little piece. So consider your energy a blessing, but don't consider it a uh, an ADHD trait. Um, they call it superpowers. I've I've seen that there. They say it's ADHD superpowers is like hyperactivity. It's um oh god, we're doing a space on the other one resilience, which I didn't know. I don't know what that means when they say resilience. There's probably something I just I don't know if to put a term for it. And there's like hyper focus, which I saw as one, but I go. It's not like a button though. I don't just snap my fingers and it, you know, magically I can start focusing into things and all this. It's just something that catches my attention. And then the hyperactivity thing, I wouldn't consider that a positive at all. It's actually probably one of my weak sides of things because it makes it so damn difficult to do anything that like this is difficult. Me, I'm shaking my foot right now. But there's a bunch of things that like I've learned to manage. And usually in the mornings, I'll do five hours of cardio and then weight lift. And then that sets me for the rest of the day to be able to talk to people just because I can't do anything. My brain's too ramped up. I want to go, go, go. I can't stop and focus into a lot of things, which is already difficult as it is, but I need that first thing in the morning. Now I've learned to do that and it's not the healthiest option because that'll definitely catch up to me when I'm older, but there's other things that people haven't figured out yet on that. Like, how do I control my hyperactivity? And then they're sitting there being out I guess what society would call a disruption and there it's not their fault, but at the same time, it's not their best gift. I mean, yeah, if they're an athlete, sure. It's a great thing to have, but there's also situations where a lot of people aren't going to be an athlete and they're probably going to work in an office and being hyper in an office is not easily, the, I guess the best thing for it. Yeah, no. And you know, there's a lot of things that uh, hyper people can do, whether they have ADHD or not. Um, yeah, you, you know, sitting on an exercise uh, ball, um, a la Dwayne on the office or uh, whatever. But I mean, you use a lot more muscles when you sit on wiggle seats, um, wiggle cushions, uh, exercise balls. Uh, you know, so people with a lot of energy to burn off, there's uh, ways to do that that are less disruptive uh, in an office setting. Those are all uh, th th those are all sensible. I think um, walking meetings make a lot of sense. I wish there was a way to do walking podcasts because um, I really, you know, or, or walking Zoom meetings. Um, uh, we would get distracted so easily, man. I'd be out in left field. Yep. Well, you know, and my, my, my practice is uh, fully virtual now. And a lot of times when I'm talking to my patients, um, it's it's amazing the fun things I get to see, but they've got their uh, phone, they're zooming from their phone. And um, uh, one, one guy's walking around this horse farm and uh, is just showing me different horses as, uh, throughout our visits. And other, other, other people are walking around gardens and every now and then they'll just you know turn the uh, uh, camera over to a pretty tree or whatever. Um, you know, that's a, that's a healthier place for every brain to be, not just ADD, but putting an ADHD brain in a healthy place is going to decrease ADHD behavior and improve self-control over whatever it was before that setting. Kind of like being out in nature. Yeah. Na nature's huge. Na nature's really good for our brains. It won't, it, it won't take ADD away, but it'll calm ADD and it'll, um, it'll settle an ADD mind into a, in, in, into a more productive place much of the time. Have you noticed like overload when it comes to some things? 
like I mentioned burned out burnout earlier, but overload, like sensations and things of that sort. Like sometimes if, um, you know, everyone, I think when they're driving turns down the radio a little bit, just so they can try and find when they come closer to location. But I find like, if it's with tasks and things of other sorts, there's a lot that gets thrown out and I go, let's examine college students that have to deal with a paper, 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 paper. I mean, Adderall is a big thing for college kids that even don't even have ADHD or don't even need it, but they want to focus and get all these deadlines hit. So if it's impacting them, what is a person with ADHD experiencing? It might even if it's classes that they like. When I was in college, it wasn't super bad because I had like some online ones and then I went to school for them, but it was a nice kind of separate and they were gave me enough time on some things. But are we recognizing that as well too when it comes to task overload? I mean, that's going to cause people to turn to I would say addictive behavior, which I think I, I'm definitely addicted to the gym, but I think that's a healthier option than a lot of stuff out there. But alcohol, smoking, um, plenty of other things. I try and like when I try it, I'm like, all right, yeah, this can be something that's going to be a bad route for it. But there's like being self-aware of that too for someone who has ADHD. But then what do we talk about when it comes to overloading people's senses on that the world's constantly going to do that to you? Right. No, it, it it is and you know you, you know balance and restoration um you, you you know mindfulness uh practices throughout the day are uh re really helpful for any overloaded brain um ADHD brains are overloaded more often and um you, you know so having a morning and evening uh, scheduled mindfulness practice and just the ability to do little mindfulness moves like, what I would call a one breath meditation. You know, just you you recognize that your heart's racing and your blood is boiling and stuff. And you just stop for a minute and take a deep breath and let it out slowly. Just like a tiny slice of your yoga uh, uh, class or whatever, just for one breath, amazingly reduces uh, pulse blood pressure, starts uh, to reduce uh, stress hormones. I mean, there's a lot of things uh, that uh, we can do to deal with the stress and deal with the overload. Um, since, since you bring up Adderall, you know, we don't really have the uh, time to go into a, a lot of depth on m medications for ADD. But I just want to point out, you, you you said a lot of people who don't have ADD are using them, which is true. Um, there's a huge distinction between proper and improper uses of Adderall. If the dopamine level in your brain is low, in your prefrontal cortex is low, Adderall will raise it. Now it's incumbent on the docs to get the increase correct. And it's hard to do because we can't image it, we can't measure it. We, we have to intuit it from being with patients and, and asking questions. So a medicine like Adderall that raises dopamine levels is spot on and health giving for the 10% of the population who have low dopamine levels. For the rest of the population that have normal dopamine levels, it's dangerous. And that's the importance of a good diagnosis of ADHD. And if you're gonna take medications of working with a prescriber who knows very well how what's too little, what's too much, what's just right. People who don't have ADD who take Adderall aren't more productive unless they're using it to stay up and then they are more productive.
they're less likely to fall asleep, so they're going to get more done. But when we do lab studies on people who don't have ADD, who take Adderall, we see much less improvement in test-retest models. There's always improvement in a test-retest model. People who don't have ADD have very little improvement on in test-retest settings. People who don't have ADD who take placebo and think it's Adderall do far better than people who actually took Adderall. So weird. Adderall seems to degrade performance in people who don't have ADC, which makes all the sense in the world, because they don't need more dopamine. Now, there's another place where Adderall is effective, and that's in the brainstem. And that's the same place that caffeine, you know, our arousal systems. And so Adderall will keep anybody awake. And so the busy housewife who takes some Adderall with lunch and then gets the whole house clean in the next two hours just took some super coffee. Um, but, you know, they sell five-hour energy at the gas station, and there's no felony if you get caught using it. You know, I would say, you know, stick with legal uh, stimulants. Don't do not do the Adderall thing if you don't have ADD. I wasn't trying to add to the stigma of it, but now that I kind of hear you talk about it, I start going, yeah, because I have to think, how difficult is it going to become for people to get Adderall that are actually supposed to be prescribed it because of the fact that there's all these factors of people that are misusing it who might not have ADHD? Um, I know, I think there's an Adderall shortage or something is what I heard, um, which I mean, makes it really difficult. Like for me to go get re-diagnosed for ADHD again, even though I was diagnosed at once, so I had to go to a psychiatrist to see, and then they'll give me a test and things of that sort. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't have the time to do that. I, I have a lot of time, but I just don't feel like, I don't know, that's not the top of my list. Um, I know, but- no, the, the waiting list to see me is a year long. Um, you know, who, who with ADHD can wait a year to, uh, get it diagnosed but uh, i mean that's the that, that that's the mental health care problem that we have in the united states we 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 haven't appreciated mental health care i mean I, I, it's a thing that came out of the pandemic is all, all of a sudden everybody values their mental health a lot more than we used to that'll be good for america in the long run but um the system makes it very hard um, access to providers is very limited. Very few people want to take care of people with ADHD. Very few people understand it enough to have compassion for people with ADHD. Um, and uh, so truly, the, 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 the number of well-educated, compassionate physicians who still think that it's not trying hard enough, that it's um, just chronic underperformers who have a piece missing and there's nothing I can do to help them. It's we 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 we've got a lot of the, the the medical profession needs a lot of cleanup on the understanding what it is, and you know taking compassion and making um, just providing the 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 needed services. We're we're underserviced right now, but there is an Adderall shortage, and it's part part of it is that the government sets limits on how much Adderall can be produced, and it's always based on last year. It's not based on how many people with ADHD ought to be taking it. It's based on historic norms. And so even though the majority of adults with ADHD aren't diagnosed, there will be some diagnosed this year. And then they'll go into a system that's going to be ready with last year's Adderall supply. So there's going to be a shortage almost every year. You know, no bureaucrat is ever going to get this right. 
Yeah, it's going to keep getting shorter, in my opinion. It will. It will. And so, um, plus, there's there, there's a lot of new rules that are well intended, but you know, every bureaucracy creates bumbly rules um, that accomplish some of what you need, but uh, have unintended consequences. And so, Adderall uh, falls under the same uh, schedule, uh, according to the DEA, as uh, as the as the opioids. And opioid use has been crazy and terrible and needs to be reined in. And so they set some rules for pharmacies intended to rein it in, but those are also making it difficult for pharmacies to stock the amounts of Adderall that they need. So you have the shortage and the wonky supply chain, both making it hard for patients right now. What's one area with ADHD in your research or just in your experience What's one thing that you think will never be something that will probably get really an answer to? I haven't came across anything that I haven't been able to search up and someone has done a paper on it or hasn't. But I also looked at probably what you would say, the basic stuff of ADHD, um, just stuff that I experience. I don't think I experience anything that's super rare or anything that's like, it would be cool if it was though. Good God, put me in a medical textbook. Let's do it now. But there's, I, I don't, I don't know anything that I haven't seen. I don't know if it might be later age type stuff. I mean, I just found out the other day that I guess one of three adults or something like that with ADHD, like apparently you lose it as some people can lose it when they become an adult or they just better at masking it. Ooh, good question. Um, and, and again, the most recent research on this is walking those numbers back. Um, in, 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 in the latest study, about 10% of people, of children, teens with ADHD, seem to have lost in an adulthood. But in most cases, it appears that it's being masked and it isn't gone. Um, so, but that's, uh, th th this is within the last year. And... So if you go back to 2000, studies said that about 25% of, of teens with ADHD would become adults with ADD. And then for a long time, the number sat about 50%. And then, you know, two-thirds, three-fourths. But now it's 90 with the expectation that that number is still too low and that as we learn more, that number is going to go up, not down. So that's the that's the most recent on it. We... Um, which means, you know, that most people who are diagnosed with it as children who think they still have traits or who still think they're being affected by symptoms probably should look into it. It's uh, it's it's not likely that it went away. It's just likely that you're much, much better at managing it than you were as a child. But Lord knows your potential and you don't. And so, you know, that, that that's what I would say to anybody with a childhood history of ADHD who still wonders, you know, are there remnants of it? And I say, oh, find out. You know, you know, you, you've got literally, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Um, Have you ever looked into? I mean, do you support any other methods of treatment besides just using like the basic pharmaceutical? I'm not shaming the pharmaceutical drugs at all. I'm just curious because I don't even take Tylenol. So it would be interesting if there's anybody out there that has like, I know people try yoga and people try diets and all that as well too, but Besides like being able to understand it better to be able to work with it as well too. I'm just curious if there's any other like methods out there that you've heard of or someone's tried experience or if there's any research that's going in another direction of just besides making people aware. Right. Well, 
you know, my job, because I'm a physician all day, every day is medication uh, for ADHD. And I'll, and I'll tell you that's hard and that no two people are alike. And so you can't say, here's the medication we use. You, you can't say, here's a medication and it makes sense for you to try it. And if you're getting a good response, here's what you'll notice. But it's complicated. So you try it, you come back, we'll talk about it and we'll see, is this a good medication? If it seems good, we still have to nail the dose. And even the formulation, you know, there's formulations that dispense more in the morning, less in the afternoon, less in the morning, more in the afternoon. There's a lot of finessing, even when you think you've found a good medication. And a lot of people have never been given that careful uh, attention to their medication to make sure it's right and that it fits. To be honest, a lot of my patients are on low doses of two medication. Very few people get all they need out of one. And when we start running into side effects, I, I'm not going to make people uncomfortable to take ADD medication. We'll start another medicine. We're not going to push so that, I mean, why? Why, why, why would you try to solve a problem and trade for another one? That, that makes no sense. We have to do this with a very high standard for it better work and it better be tolerable or we have to look elsewhere. So anyway, we're, that, 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 that's what I do. And I do it all day, every day. But you need to know that that's the tiniest part of it. Yoga does work. And especially, and I think uh, I think people with ADHD should, um, I mean, do hot yoga if you want, uh, and, and, and if you enjoy it, but should sometimes do the very slow um, uh, yoga. And sometimes it'll be only old people in your class, but um, but the slow yogas with an instructor who's really finessing the the asanas and all is great because. It's a practice of attention, you know, attending to how your hip joint feels and how your knee feels and how your muscles and tendons are stretching and all. It's it's great attention practice. It's fun and it's different than the attentions we're normally practicing, which are to externals and to papers and to people and to assignments and stuff. And so just um, body awareness is practicing attention and it's good it's good for people with ADD just like it's good for everybody um coaching is working with people who are specialists in ADHD who aren't therapists but can work with how do you think about this and how might you change how you think about it and so an example uh would be do you enjoy a clean kitchen sink? I mean, is there a tiny bit of pleasure in it? If so, maybe could you clean the sink before you go to bed and just take three seconds and enjoy it and go, cool, I get to start the day fresh tomorrow. Could you do it for the positive instead of for the negative of, oh crap, lazy people, leave their kitchen a mess and I don't want to be lazy, so I got to do it. You know, do you want to start it with what I would call self-butt kicking? Um, you know, trying to make yourself feel bad enough to do it. Or would you like to do it for whatever joy it contains? Um, and so examining, a, a, a coach will work with somebody with, with ADHD to say, 
are you doing this with negativity? Couldn't we do it with positivity? Can we reframe? And so working with a coach can be really helpful, different than therapy, uh, but useful. There's a specific form of therapy called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And psychologists who know how to do CBT for uh, ADHD can be a big help. It's work along similar lines. Well, I won't go into it. Exercise is huge. Everybody should exercise an hour a day. We've known that for years. Only 5% of the population does it. Um, I had a yoga instructor who said, I call it exercise if you're moving and you're smiling. And I'm going with that one because I had a drill sergeant in my brain that was making exercise miserable. And again, the notion that we could exercise and have fun doing it is really important for people with ADD. Now, everybody gets mental benefit from exercise, but people with ADHD get more. And so if that's an advantage, then cool. I get more benefit from exercise than more mental benefit from exercise than the next guy, so cool. But um, everybody with ADHD should be exercising and typically in the morning, you mentioned that earlier and you're spot on. That's mentally, that's the time to exercise. Um, so at any rate, good sleep is really important. People with ADD tend to be lousy sleepers for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's behavioral. Sometimes people with ADD don't get some, themselves into bed. We call that behavioral insomnia. It's not that you can't go to sleep, it's that you don't. A lot of people, but the majority of people with ADHD have some kind of sleep disorder and those need attention. Um, and there's therapists now who are working specifically with sleep coaching and helping people learn the methods and behaviors and, and, and habits that lead to sleep. And so you, you just can't say that do one of these because it's the best. They're all the best. And why would you miss out on any thing that's good for your brain? I just got one last question for you, but do you think in like, when do you think that, I guess it's really going to start taking a real change for not, I mean, I'm sure it's doing now. I'm sure the work you're doing is doing great work as well um, to help out people with ADHD, but when like a societal change, like when people really start recognizing, and I've started to see a turn, at least from what I've been able to look up and see now, and I'm going to be talking about it a lot more. Um, just the awareness factor on it has really changed from when I was a kid, you know, um, and I think that's good, but I also think we're just not exactly where we should be. We should be a little bit farther on the forefront on some things. Not anything doctor-wise, I'm just saying stigmatized-wise. We need to get a little bit past some basic notions of stuff. I know some people that will probably still tell people it's in your head or you have too much energy sounds like a problem. And it's like, hey, we can't keep doing that one. We actually really need to talk about recognizing something. At least taking the stigma out of it. And I looked it up, and it's telling me it wasn't on the autism's uh spectrum where i was like oh my god that was like my biggest fear i was like oh please don't tell me i'm a and then i'm I'm reading it and they're like oh no it's just similar symptoms i'm like well that doesn't sound good either what is it and they're like just outbursts and things of this sort and they named a couple things i'm like all right well i can contain that in public but when i'm home it's no holds bar i can tell you that much yeah no i mean it it, it begins and at the lowest level people know that we shouldn't stigmatize anything that's not somebody else's choice. And so I think that'll be the first level of societal acceptance is just the understanding that the 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 the, the stigma needs to stop. Um but I think we're finding this in many areas. 
it's not enough to uh it's 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 not enough to not be a racist we need to really search ourselves for prejudice for all kinds of prejudices we we need to keep weeding them out and 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 keep looking um we need to value people who are different in the contribution they bring whether it's you know, represented by a race, for example, uh, Chinese uh, immigrants to the United States have have brought a lot. So have Italian immigrants. Now, valuing Italian immigrants doesn't cut away at racism, but it does cut away at the prejudice that Italians uh, uh, suffered under when they when when they first came to the United States, or the Irish, the the prejudice they suffered, and so. We, we we want to do more than just not be evil. We want to learn to embrace, to understand, to, to esteem people who are different, understand their challenges, and where we can reduce burden, where we can enjoy and shape the world so that uh, they're more likely to be successful, so that their contributions are going to be... Um, Aren't, aren't going to be discouraged and beaten down in school and never seen in adulthood. And so, right, we need to get rid of the stigma, but we need to really build it into an esteem and an understanding of, of differences and an understanding of how we're going to act in a world of people who are different than us. But when the day comes when we really get our arms around that, that's going to be a strength, not a weakness. Dr. Mason, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Um, and thank you for your work that you do as well, too, to, for all the things towards ADHD and also being helping raise awareness as well, too. I think that's really important. It's going to be a mission for me uh, just because learning more about it and realizing it's not just a me issue. It's actually something else. It's a little bit has a different impact um, on the way I'm going to be going forward in life. But where can people find your links, Dr. Mason? OK, um, well, my, my my website is more geared to my patients, and uh, that's attentionmd.com. Um, the uh, chad.org, that's C-H-A-D-D.org, uh, is a real helpful resource uh, site um, uh, that uh, uh, your listeners may be interested in. It, it, it has links to some other allied sites. And um, the CHAD organization, along with the National Library of Medicine, actually maintains a repository of research on ADHD. So people who would like to uh, look at more research studies about ADHD may, may find the National Library of Medicine links at the CHAD site uh, to be helpful. Um, and so I, I uh, won't give a long list, but uh, there, there, there's a lot of organizations that are really trying to improve awareness. Um, uh, Attitude Magazine that's spelled A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E, attitudemag.com is another good website with a lot of resources at it. Um, uh, ADHDinadults.com is a helpful, helpful website. And uh, there, there, fortunately, there's more and more. Uh, there, only the Chad website, uh, none, none of the rest of these existed when my kids were first diagnosed. And so the, the world is uh, rich with opportunities uh, uh, to learn more. And so for the folks who stuck with us the whole time and they're still curious, um, I hope that's helpful. 
I'm going to link all those links in the description. And like I said, it's been a pleasure having you on my show. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.